Well, good morning, and I want to extend my greetings to all of you out there in uh, various parts of the state here, uh, coming to join us electronically here this morning. I uh, bring greetings from Inner City Baptist Church and from Detroit Baptist Seminary, uh, where I serve ordinarily on a weekly basis. I'd invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, and we'll be looking at large chunks of the last two chapters, chapters 11 and 12, this morning. The book of Ecclesiastes is something of a unique book in the Christian scriptures. It's something of a primer on biblical philosophy, if I may, a book on worldview development. It's a book on the meaning of life. It's written by King Solomon during the waning years of his life and is addressed uh, specifically to his son, probably, he had many sons of course, but probably specifically to his son Rehoboam who was going to succeed him as king. Sadly, Rehoboam did not listen to the advice that his father gave. We don't know exactly why that is, but we can sort of put two and two together. Solomon, by his own admission, did not live most of his life consistently with the words that he penned in this book. You see, Solomon's position of privilege had opened up for him every possible opportunity in life, and he had tried them all, one by one. He had lived his life boldly, aggressively, dangerously, scandalously. He tried everything. And sometimes he did have moments of satisfaction and euphoria that were short-lived. More often, though, he had moments of futility and despair. And as he comes into the gray-haired years of his life and pens these words, the sentiment of the book that he writes carries something of the tone found in the words of music legend Rod Stewart. I wish that... I knew what I knew now when I was younger. And as is so often tragically the case, an older but wiser man tells his son, do as I say, but not as I have done. And as has often been the case, the younger son says, now I'll, I'll not follow you, you're a hypocrite. And he walks away from the wisest man in history to a rather inglorious end. This tragic reality has been repeated in almost every chapter of human history. And it's a reminder for all of us to accelerate our maturity, to accelerate the accumulation of biblical wisdom and the implementation of biblical wisdom, no matter what stage of life we are in. Because people are watching. People are mimicking. But Ecclesiastes is also a reminder to all of us that just because those ahead of us have feet of clay and have failed along the way, this does not give you an excuse to do the same. So it's a warning for all of us, young and old, for, old, for those of us who are advancing the realization that there are people watching and mimicking. For those of us who are younger, it's a realization that even though those ahead of us have failed, this does not give me a pass on the day of judgment. When we get before God, the excuse, my parents let me down, 
or my friends let me down, or my church, even my pastor, let me down. It won't fly in the day of judgment, because in the day of judgment we all live and die of our own accord. Solomon spends the first ten chapters of his book detailing in large part the circuitous path that his life has taken, and we find a great many tidbits of wisdom along the way. But as we come down to the last two chapters of his book on wisdom, there's, there's a sense of urgency that creeps into Solomon's tone. If this were a movie, the, the music would mellow here at this point. His son is turning back away from what he ought to be doing, and Solomon is getting desperate. He wants his son to listen to him, and he, and he offers a series of specific summary imperatives that are, that are directed squarely at the youth, but I think are valuable for all of us. Firstly, he says, invest well. Invest well. I see this advice in the first six verses of chapter 11. I'll read them here this morning. Cast your bread upon the waters, and after many days you will find it again. Give portions to seven, yes, to eight, for you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth, whether a tree falls to the south or to the north. In the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant, whoever looks at the clouds will not reap, and you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in the mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Therefore, sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let not your hands be idle, for you do not know what will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will be doing equally well. Solomon gives perhaps what seems to us at the beginning here a rather unusual command, cast your bread upon the waters, and perhaps you have a picture in your mind right now of someone going down to the Detroit River and dumping some bread into the water and coming back a week later to see what happened to it. Uh, your, the picture would be wrong. But what is the picture here? Well, Solomon here is directing his protege to diversify his investments. In this case, by investing in grain shipments to multiple overseas markets with the hope of a return. Now, at first blush, this might be the kind of counsel you would expect from any retirement planning planner today, whether he's Christian or not. Diversify your portfolio. But as we look further, we find that there's more here. We, we know, frankly, that Solomon did all this financially. Second uh, Samuel tells us, for instance, that his merchant fleet was nothing short of legendary. But he found no real satisfaction in it. One of the other more wealthy men in Scripture, the man Job, in the midst of a highly diversified wealth-building phase of his retirement strategy, lost it all in a single day. All three of his investments failed. A rich farmer in Luke succeeded in the wealth-building strategy, but then as soon as he gets to the point where it's, it's all collected in one place and he begins his wealth preservation phase of his re retirement, promptly dies. And satisfaction is denied to him as well. So Solomon is 
certainly offering advice more profound than simply diversify your portfolio. Many have done this and failed. And in fact, our text tells us that this is very often the case. In verse 2, we find that all sorts of misfortunes occur in life. Everybody has them. Solomon here identifies natural disasters, uh, disasters associated with the weather. Sometimes you plant seeds and reap nothing because of wind or rain or storm. Sometimes you cast your bread on the waters and wait for your ship to come in and it never comes in, right? The disasters that come to us may be different in kind, but they're always lurking. It might be a debilitating illness. It may be a terrible accident. It may be an economic downturn or a crippling war. You could lose everything in a day, and there's nothing you can do about it. Even if you are successful, he says, you could reach the end of your working career and die promptly without having a chance to slow down and enjoy the twilight years that you've earned. You simply don't know the decree of God, whether you will prosper or not. Indeed, even in the best of situations, the end is the same. We all die. It's just a matter of timing. It's rather a morose thought, I suppose, as we gather here this morning. But the fact is, it's important that we recognize this. It sort of highlights something that Solomon said earlier in this book. It's better to prefer weeping over laughing. It's better to prefer funerals to parties. Why? Because those great disasters of life have a tendency to reorient the way we think so that we remember what really matters, something that's lost in the midst of festivity. So indulge me, if I may, to remind you of the fact that you will die. We all die. It's just a matter of time and circumstances known only to God. But, as the text goes on to assure us, he does know. He does know. Verse 5 says he orchestrates it. And herein lies the basis for Solomon's advice to us. If you have no control over the outcome of life, then why bother investing, we might say. Some people do respond that way. You know people like that. They see a contrary wind or an ominous sky, and they plant nothing, and they guarantee their own failure. They fail, fail to invest in anything and curse God when they end up with nothing. But Solomon says, in effect, that's the wrong approach. We should invest all the more liberally in view of the sovereignty of God. But the diversified investment strategy that Solomon advises is not one that your financial advisor is likely to understand. One should not merely invest for financial gain in this life, but also in the lives of those who succeed us in the life that is to come. Invest, Solomon says, in seven or eight others. Verse 2, right? Give portions to seven, yea, to eight. This number is not a fixed one. It's actually a sort of a, a Hebrew idiom that means several. The X, X plus one motif, it just means several. But at the same time, probably the fact that he chose seven and eight is is probably not a mistake either. It's not irrelevant. Invest your life thoroughly and generously in a few, several people, 
perhaps on average you will have the occasion to invest in seven or eight thoroughly. You'll be able to mentor seven or eight. Hopefully it's, it at least includes your own children. But then beyond that, a few more that you'll be able to pour your life into so that your Christian testimony will multiply. Before me today are men and women of all ages. Some of you have occasion to invest generally, uh, generously in seven or eight. You're young. Some of you may be advancing in years and say, well, there's no way for, I can do seven or eight at this point. Well, then reduce the number to one or two, but don't reduce it to zero. Don't reduce it to zero. Continue to invest. The church does not advance by reinventing itself every generation. Now, that's sometimes the tendency we have to think, that the church has to reinvent every generation. But God anticipates that we will build generation on top of generation through accumulated wisdom. And this is something that has to be recognized by young and old alike. You need to invest. You need to mentor those who are coming up behind you. And young folks, you need to allow that to happen. Because the fact is, you need it. And so here we have advice. Live in such a way, Solomon says, that your wealth succeeds you. Not just your material wealth, but your, but your spiritual wealth. What you have accumulated over the course of years of sanctification. Our Lord Christ develops this investment strategy more pointedly, right? Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break to, through to steal, but rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in to steal because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can take it all with you if you invest differently than the world does. So firstly, remember to invest, not strictly for retirement, but for eternity. Second piece of advice that Solomon gives, I find in verses 7 through 10. You read those for you here and read along, if you would, in your own scriptures. Light is sweet. It pleases the eye to see the sun. However many years a man may live, let him enjoy them all. But let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. Be happy, young man, while you are young. Let your heart give you joy all the days of your youth. Follow your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things God will bring you to judgment. So then, banish anxiety from your heart, cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. The words that appear in this section sound perhaps strangely familiar to advice that's almost ubiquitous today and today's educational system, follow your heart. I swallow hard when I actually have to repeat those words because most people who utter those words don't mean what Solomon meant by them. Still, it's right there, verse 9. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. You can't simply ignore it. 
But whatever you do, don't stop reading here, because as with the previous point, Solomon offers an important qualification to this bit of ubiquitous advice that you can find in every, in, in, on, on websites all over the place today. Know this, he says, God will call you into judgment for all of these things. So this qualification is very important. We should anticipate it. Uh, most commentators suggest that Solomon is deliberately contrasting the language of Numbers 15.39 and also Deuteronomy 29.19 where Moses says, put bind tassels around your, uh, around the, between the frontlets of your eyes and on the hems of your garments and don't follow your heart. Okay? So Solomon here is actually saying something different. So how, 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 are we going to, how are we going to harmonize those two bits of information? So which is it? Should we follow our own hearts or shouldn't we? Well, if I may, both can be true, provide we understand the qualifications. When Moses says, obey God and don't follow your heart, he suggests, he's suggesting here that there are corrupt hearts that will refuse to obey God. He certainly doesn't mean that we shouldn't live life without risk or adventure or pleasure. These are the stuff of youth. God does not deny us these things. But he is saying that when you take risks and pursue pleasures and have adventures, which you may indeed have with all God's blessing, make sure that they do not take you outside the parameters established by the Christian scriptures. Solomon says the same thing but more positively. Enjoy life. Enjoy it to the full. Live well. Seize the day. Carpe diem. But as you do, bear this in mind, that there is a judgment at the end of life, so choose your adventures wisely. Now for some of you here listening this morning, this sounds oxymoronic. You hear me saying something like, have fun, but don't. There are several reasons why this may be. One reason is that you may think that this, this way because your heart needs to be changed. God's advice to follow your heart really only works if you have a new heart. If you're regenerate, you've been born from above and submitted to Jesus Christ. And while my goal this morning is not specifically to address those who have never had a heart change, I think it's important for me to mention this. Solomon's advice doesn't really work until this happens. God will bring you into judgment for following wicked hearts, and the judgment will be uniformly tearing, ter terrifying. You must not follow your heart if your heart is wicked. Others of you perhaps are thinking, okay, I've got this new heart that you're speaking of. What kinds of adventures and pleasures and risks am I allowed to do? Well, one thing Solomon comes back to more than any other is this. If you're a girl, find yourself a husband. If you're a guy, find yourself a wife who exhilarates you and with whom you can share your adventures. And then, like Solomon, enjoy good food and music and entertainment and travel and hobbies and the like. Don't hold back, Solomon says. Live life to the full. I can confess I, I have this picture in my mind right now as I, as I, as I, as I say this of, of Tevye 
on uh, Fiddler on the Roof singing L'chaim to life. But in the midst of the many risks and adventures that you enjoy in life, take some risks and have some adventures along the way that have some real reward attached to them. Take risks not only to climb a cliff or go skydiving or write a book or become a senator. Take risks for Christ. Risk your career, your retirement, your safety, your spouse, your children, and yea, even your own life also, as our, our Lord Christ tells us to do in Luke. Do something great for Him, because these are the most rewarding risks and adventures that you can possibly have. And Solomon informs us, judgment awaits you as well, in the form not of punishment, but of reward. And much better than the thrill of standing at the top of Mount Everest, or performing at Carnegie Hall, or sitting behind the desk of the Oval Office, will be that spine-tingling thrill that you receive when your Lord says to you, well done. So to summarize this second command, take great risks. Have great adventures. Enjoy life. Follow your heart. But keep this in mind that God will judge you in righteousness for the risks that you take and the pleasures that you enjoy, both punishing the evil and rewarding the good. So yes, follow your heart, but only so long as you guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. There's a third piece of advice here that Solomon gives to his son specifically and to youths, but I think remotely, to everyone else who is listening this morning. I find this in the first seven verses of chapter 12, and I'm going to read these now, and you can read along. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach, when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of the grinding fades and Men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. When men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along and desire is no longer stirred, then man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about in the streets. Remember him, your Creator, before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well and dust returns to the ground it came from and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. The last command here that, it, that Solomon gives here in the book of Ecclesiastes is this. Give your best years to God. Give your best years to God. For those of you in this category, hear well, you're, those of you who are youths, you are entering into the most vibrant years of your life. These are the years when your strength is greatest, your energy is most tireless, your dreams are bigger than life, your love is the very most passionate. But the irony is this, you don't really realize this until you lose these things. 
Solomon elaborates on this irony at length during this passage, reminiscing about the years that he had squandered in his youth. He writes in verse 1 from the standpoint of one who has learned that youth is not eternal, one whose passion and energy have waned. He no longer delights in the dawn of a new day. The sun comes up and says, not another day. I take no delight in a new day. In verse 2, he speaks of the worries of life and the prospect of deterioration, decay, and death that darken the outlook of the elderly like so many clouds darken the sky. Verse 3 speaks to the decline of productivity that marks old age. He's stooped over. He's without strength. The grinders no longer grind. Some have suggested here that this uh, might be a reference to his teeth, but that probably pushes the metaphor a little bit too far. Um, Probably what we have here is the grinding of grain. Because he is old and unproductive, he is unable to plant the crops, the, the wheat, that, that is brought to the, uh, to, the, to the mill and ground up during the course of the day, and so the grinding has stopped. Age makes people weary and increasingly unproductive until all one can do is stand by the window without the energy necessary to pursue your dream, dreams any longer. Verse 4 continues here with this theme. And an observation that the hum of things getting done eventually will go silent so that one can hear the birds in the middle of the day rather than the sound of things getting done. This morning I got up and had my coffee out on my porch and I noticed the birds. It's about the only time of the day that I noticed the birds, right? Because that's the only time you really slow down. And then things pick up and you, you stop noticing them. You've got to get stuff done. Uh, but then the next morning you, you hear them again. And, and, and the suggestion here is that you know, in the middle of the day he still hears the birds because he's not getting anything done. Verse 5 speaks to the vulnerability of the aged. They have fears that seem to the young to be irrational. They have fears when before all they had was confidence. The elderly fear to do simple things like travel from place to place for fear that something might go wrong. Life goes on as it always has, but the elderly are increasingly more immobile, more fearful, more vulnerable as they succumb to the deterioration that life brings. It's all been exacerbated, right, by COVID-19. Verses 6 to 7 speak finally in very symbolic language of the death of the aged. The line here that's immortalized by Fanny Crosby, right? In, his, in her song, Saved by Grace. And Solomon speaks of the day when our silver cord will break. And I no more as now shall sing. But oh the joy when I shall wake within the palace of the king. And Solomon speaks of this day when the silver cord breaks, the lamp of life that supports it, will fall to the ground and shatter. The body sinks to the earth and the soul returns to God. And it's a picture of consummate bleakness. These these verses are hard to read. 
and I, I, particularly those of you here uh, listening this morning in my broader audience who know these debilities not as, not as just ideas, but as realities in your own life. But I don't apologize for raising these issues because here's the point. Now that you knew, know what you wished you knew when you were younger, now that you know the debilitation of old age, now is the time to reinvest. Now is not the time to fade away wistfully and bitterly as Solomon did. Your youth may be past, but now you have, as it were, an opportunity to reinvest. So remember your Creator now, because the responsibility, we find, never ends. In the end, though, the instruction is not directed towards the aged, but towards youth. Because all things being equally, the bulk of the lives of those who are young still lies ahead of them. And Solomon's advice is this, remember your God in everything you do from this point forward. Not in the sense of fleeting recollections of God in the back of your mind, but in the sense that He is the center of all that you choose to do. He is the reason for the risks, for the adventures, the pleasures, the investments, the sacrifices. And once He has been placed squarely in the center of your mind's eye, then spend your life for Christ. Give your best years to Him. Follow the impulses of your renewed heart, seizing the day and taking risks for Christ's sake, and thirdly, investing your lives in what truly matters. Do these things, the Scriptures say, and your life will be one that has been well spent. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful today for your word and for the instruction that it gives, the warnings, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the reminders of stark realities that sometimes we set aside in our minds because we don't want to think of them. Lord, we've been reminded of these this morning, and we thank you for it. We ask that you will do your work in each one of us this morning, and no matter what stage we may be in, uh, whether we are older and uh, we, 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 we hear this passage from Solomon's perspective, or whether we're younger and we hear it from the perspective of those to whom he is speaking, help us to recognize what is important in life and to pursue it, to give our best years to him, to follow the impulses of our renewed hearts, seizing the day and taking risks for Christ, and investing our lives in what, what matters, so that it may be said that our lives have been well lived. In your name we pray. Amen.